0: Welcome to the Global Futures Podcast with me, Joël Sandu. The novel coronavirus, COVID-19, is grabbing news headlines across the world. While medical experts have not fully understood the virus and the estimation for a vaccine to counteract COVID-19 is expected for 2021, its impact and devastation is being felt in many parts of life. Death tolls across the world are rising. Governments are struggling to rapidly increase staffing and equipment to keep up with the growing number of people falling ill. In a number of countries, schools and offices are closing their doors. Public gatherings and conferences are being pulled and travel restrictions are being put in place. Italy is in a complete lockdown. Just recently, President Trump issued a 30 days travel ban into the U.S. from much of Europe in a bid to prevent further spread of the new coronavirus. What makes COVID-19 so different from other epidemics and pandemics? What's the difference between an epidemic and pandemic? To discuss these issues with us, I'm joined by Mara Pillinger. Mara is a Global Governance Futures alumna and an associate at the O'Neill Institute for National and Global Health Law at Georgetown Law School in Washington, D.C. Mara is part of the Global Health Policy Governance Initiative, and despite being an expert in great demand, Mara took the time out to share her thoughts on COVID-19, the global health system, and the US's response to the coronavirus. Here is what she had to say. So Mara, thank you very much for joining the Global Futures podcast and crazy times we're in.
1: Yes, very.
0: Let me jump right in then. Uh, We're here to talk about the coronavirus, COVID-19. And as you know, it's captured news headlines across the globe. Um, And it's like nothing we've seen in decades. Uh, Certainly, I haven't seen anything like this before. Um, Its impact is being felt in financial markets. Uh, You see how it's impacted global oil prices. The pharmaceutical companies, I think, haven't been rosier, (laughs) especially if you were looking for hand sanitizer. (laughs) (laughs) But also schools uh, are closing down, workplaces are closing down. Um, What makes this virus so different from other outbreaks we've seen in the past? And I'm thinking here about, you know, bird flu, Ebola, SARS. And, you know, when you joined GGF, we're also talking about Zika. What makes this different?
1: Yeah, so I think the first thing that makes this different is that this is truly a pandemic. Uh, So it is officially a pandemic. WHO declared that yesterday. And there's no, you know, exact sort of technical definition of what a pandemic is. But basically, it is the worldwide simultaneous spread of a disease. So like, If you go back to the Greek, pandemic is pandemos, all the people. means we are all getting hit by this at once. And so there are close to 120,000 cases that we know about, many, many more that we don't in, I think, over like 110 countries, I think I saw yesterday. And it will hit the rest sooner rather than later, probably most of the rest. Um, So this is truly a global, you know, a global epidemic, a global crisis, public health crisis. And the only two pandemics that we have seen in our lifetimes is HIV. But, you know, different disease, different transmission. And then in 2009, swine flu, or H1N1, WHO declared a pandemic. They did that based on early data that it was looking quite severe. It turned out, you know, many, 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 many months later, we found out that it was not as severe as some of the early data had suggested. And so WHO came under a lot of criticism for declaring that a pandemic. And they said that it induced panic and whatever else, caused pharmaceutical stockpiling and so W. Show had kind of said that they were going to retire that term, and yet yesterday we now have a pandemic, which I think is a good signal of the level of concern that public health officials feel confronting this. Um, and it's it's just much more serious than it spreads more easily. It spreads between people. It spreads through the air. It's not quite air, you know, airborne aerosolized, but in droplets that spread between the air as well as on surfaces. Each person that get sick infects somewhere between two to three other people. So there's sort of a, a rapid doubling factor here. People can transmit this before they are feeling symptoms, it, the data is suggesting. Because um, of the
0: incubation period. Because of the
1: incubation period, exactly. So um, this thing is going to spread far and fast. And the fatality rate, it's it's very hard to calculate for sure at this point in an epidemic, but the numbers that WHO is coming out with is about 3.4%. It's That's an overestimation because we're missing a lot of mild cases, but we do know that it's much more severe in certain populations, and that's really concerning as well.
0: So let me pick you up on that. You said the WHO called this a pandemic since yesterday, and you mentioned you know early data points. Well, it seems with coronavirus, they had the data points early on, why did they wait so long to call it a pandemic? Because there's also this discussion, is it a pandemic? It's all over the world. Why is the WHO waiting?
1: Yeah, absolutely. So let me distinguish between a pandemic and a public health emergency of international concern. The public health emergency of international concern, which is a fake or a feek, depending on how people say it, is the the step that WHO can take, the declaration that they can make that has real governance implications. And they did that fairly early on. There was criticism that they didn't do it quickly enough. But since the new international health regulations, which is the body of international law that governs how we respond, prevent and respond to infectious diseases and other health threats. Since those came into effect, the new revised version came into effect in 2005, there have been six fakes declared. And this is the second fastest that they've done it. So they moved pretty fast, um, met, waited for a little bit more data, and then their second meeting, they made this declaration. The pandemic declaration is, is doesn't have real governance implications. It doesn't change the authorities that WHO has. It doesn't put measures into place um, internationally to sort of have public health advice from WHO or anything else that that comes with a public health declaration, a public health emergency declaration. Um, so that piece has already been there. The pandemic thing is really more descriptive and just sort of raising the the level of expectations about what it is that we're facing. And so WHO has held off in, in calling this a pandemic because of the concern, one, that it induces panic, which you know, seeing the lagging responses of some governments, maybe we need a little bit more of that. To shake um, up a bit. Exactly, and also because they were afraid that calling it a pandemic would send the message that the virus can no longer be contained, that we can no longer get out in front of this, that basically we're now at the mercy of this virus and, you know, can do nothing but sit and wait to all be infected or, or whatever else. Um, and they didn't want to give that impression that there's nothing that we can do, there's nothing that governments can do. But I think it's important that they have made the declaration because while there is still a lot that governments can do and in that indivi- even more that individuals Can do. We're moving into, at least in the US, arguably in parts of Europe, sort of there are different stages of what a public health response looks like. And we're moving into this place where we should still be doing everything that we can to contain it, but also requiring mitigation measures. And at the point where we need to accept that a lot of people, you know, millions and millions of people potentially. 40 to 70 percent of people in the world are going to get this and we need to be prepared to deal with that.
0: Well, talking about Europe, right, Um, you know, I live in Berlin and the situation there has become severe. The chancellor has come out and said, you know, be prepared, you know, up to 70 percent of the German population, which is about 56 million people, could be infected. And we're sitting here in Washington, D.C., the capital of the U.S., and in the past, couple of days just walking around. I feel like, you know, people talk about it. It's a point of conversation, but it's um, the reaction is not as um, crazy as, as what's happening in Europe. Can you give us a sense of how the U.S. health authorities are dealing with COVID-19 and what are the challenges here in the U.S.?
1: Sure. So let me start by saying that the the response in the U.S. is kind of running at two levels. Public health experts are really, really concerned. We are really concerned because we are concerned about the capacity in our healthcare system, in our hospital system. We have exceptionally high quality of medical care. We don't have a very good public health system um, in the sense that you know the ability to reach out to people in communities to help ensure that people are able to access the care they need. We obviously do not have national health insurance, so there are questions about you know whether people have insurance or not what that insurance covers what the costs are so there are a lot of barriers to entry to our health system. There are a lot of access problems. And then there's limited capacity within the hospital system. And that's true in the US, that's true in Europe, that's true everywhere. It's also unlikely that we will be able to scale up capacity in our healthcare system with anywhere near the speed that China was able to do. And because this is happening everywhere in the world, there is a global shortage, or will be a global shortage, of personal protective equipment, a global shortage of you know, uh, machines for testing and stuff like that. So that also kind of creates supply problems. And the there was a slide that came out from the American Hospital Association, I think, last week um, that estimated 96 million. And again, you know, this is an estimate. This is these are projections. They are our best guess based on what I know or what we know. Sorry, not me. I'm not the one doing this math, um, which is a good thing for everyone. And, um, you know, it they shouldn't be taken as gospel. But the projections, the best guess of epidemiologists right now is about 96 million cases, just under 5 million hospitalizations, 4.8, about 2 million people in intensive care, and around 480,000 deaths. If you look at this 40 to 70% estimate for the U.S. population, 330 million people, that is even higher than what the American Hospital Association is projecting. It's between 130 to 230 million infections. So this is... Potentially going to affect a lot of people, and you know that's on top of flu season, which already strains our hospital infrastructure. So we, you, you've seen the hashtag floating around. I'm sure flatten the curve. It means slow the spread, slow the pace of this epidemic. At some point, people are going to be exposed. At some point, most people are going to be infected. Very many people are going to be infected but if we can drag that out so that we're not imposing the burden on the health system, then we have a much better chance of getting through this without seeing really um, significant mortality rates among the populations at highest risk. So people over the age of 65, people with comorbidities, pre-existing conditions, but things like asthma, diabetes, heart disease, even high blood pressure. And there's a large segment of the American population that suffers from diabetes, high blood pressure, et cetera, et cetera. So even people who aren't under 65, you know, there's, there, there's grounds for being, you know, cautiously afraid, not panicked, but sort of informed and yet worried about what the consequences are going to be. And that said, what we need to be doing is two things, and we're doing neither one of them in the U.S. right now. We need to be doing everything that we can to increase the capacity in our health systems, to increase training, to make pr- more personal protective equipment available. And, you know, I think they're doing what what we can, but that's a difficult process to put into place quickly. Um, there was some talk yesterday in Congress about using different types of masks and whatever else. So there's attention being paid to it. But we also really need to be delivering the message to individuals, to everyone at high risk and at low risk that we all need to be changing the way that we behave and that we conduct business day to day to minimize transmission of this virus.
0: And this is where the whole social distancing comes in exactly. and washing your hands and- Exactly,
1: and that message has not been coming consistently from our government. In fact, there have been very mixed messages coming out where you know different people, the HHS secretary and a CDC official are saying opposite things at the same CDC time. Being... Sorry, the US Centers for Disease Control. And prevention, technically, is are saying different officials. Uh, these different these officials are saying different things at the same time. The president has been very much downplaying the severity of this. Um, at one point, you know, he called the the not the disease itself, but the panic a hoax, mm-hmm. um, saying that we have all the test kits we need, which is patently not true. Um, saying that this is not going to be severe, it's going to go away with warm weather, which we have no evidence to suggest that that's the case. You know, his hunch is that it's not very serious. Well, not sure that that's a great basis for making public policy decisions.
0: Let let me pick you up on something you said earlier, which is the way the Chinese government has dealt with COVID-19, how they've locked down, you know. Entire city, millions of people um, uh, had to go into self-quarantine and so on. And that's, you know, given the government um, and the governance structure in, in China, they, they're able to do that, right? Mm-hmm. What are the challenges of fighting the coronavirus in a federally organized state, such as the US? What do you think are are gonna be like the major challenges here?
1: Sure, so the challenges are kind of on two levels. One comes from the federal organization, and then one comes from just the type of society that we live in in general. The United States is not able to do what China has done many people would say for better, maybe some people would say for worse, but it means that we really are relying on individuals to make decisions, businesses to make decisions that can achieve the same thing, meaning social distancing, without some of the draconian measures and the human rights restrictions and stuff like that that we saw in China. To do that, there needs to be very consistent messaging from the government, high level of trust in what people are saying, that people need to have confidence that their lives aren't going to be negatively affected in a way that puts them at risk, meaning that even if they are practicing social distancing, they're not going to lose their livelihood, they're still going to get paid, they're going to be able to get food, all of that kind of stuff. And we have just seen no communication from the government about what this looks like. And then because we have a federal system, it means that the Authority to do this sort of varies across jurisdictions and what gets determined at a local or state level versus what gets determined by the federal government. And I'm not a lawyer, so I don't want to give like too many details on this. But in the U.S., what a lot of these decisions are made at the local and state level following guidance from CDC, from the federal government. Um, some things are still centralized, like getting approvals for test kits from the FDA. We've seen that that's been a problem. But this decentralization can be a positive and it can be a negative. It can be a negative where you have widely differing practices across jurisdiction. How is that, that a positive? Well, it can, that's a negative. Uh, sorry. Um, well, actually, in some ways it might be positive. I'll come to that in a second. But in general, that's a negative, right? Because in general, what we want is clear and consistent messaging. And if you know one school district is shut down and another one isn't, if one town is practicing social distancing and another there isn't, then people are confused and they sort of don't understand the need for being really rigorous in these measures. That said, because we're seeing such a lack of proactive leadership and guidance coming from the federal government, many of our cities and states are outpacing what's being done by the federal government. States are making their own arrangements to expand testing. Um, States are beginning to implement social distancing measures that we haven't you know, not necessarily seen clear guidance coming from the C D C. Our businesses are doing the same, right? Major businesses. A lot of tech people working firms, from home. A ton of people working from home. The NBA last night just announced that they're suspending their season. Major, you know, South by Southwest, like major conferences and public uh, events concerts, public events, stuff like that are being cancelled. So to the extent that decentralization allows some people to get out ahead and be proactive and do what the federal government isn't and hopefully drag everyone else along in that direction then in this case it might be operating for the good but in general we would just like to see a you know a a proactive concerted effort nationwide effort to Mm. get this under control
0: so i'm sure you're aware of this less than 12 hours ago president trump announced travel restrictions to the us from 26 european countries in a bid to tackle the coronavirus outbreak what are your thoughts on this travel ban and how effective do you think these measures will be and i can see you already shaking your head in front of me
1: (laughs) you see the like look of dismay on my face um i'm really concerned about this for two reasons one travel bans are never terribly effective but at this point in the pandemic we are past the point where they make any difference this virus is spreading in our communities um and to implement a travel ban at this point is really a little bit like standing under a waterfall and then like yelling because somebody is splashing you with their hand like yes they're getting water on you but they're really not the source of your problem as long as you're standing under the waterfall right and and that's what what this is a really good
0: image to have Um,
1: there thanks so you know it is And it it is also concerning, it's misguided, it is also concerning because it is diverting attention and focus and resources from the response that we need to be having. To the extent that this substitutes for the kinds of proactive measures that I was just discussing, and gives the president, if not anyone else, a false sense of security. Then this is a waste of our a waste of our resources, and therefore is not just not beneficial. It's actively harmful.
0: So you, you have a great deal of experience working in the multi-sectoral global health area, and I get the sense of you know that you've already given us a picture that you know the international community, nationally, and you know even locally, we're not doing what we should have been doing before. So I, I get that sense. Um, but you also have particular experience in West Africa, and this is part of the world that we haven't heard too much about when it comes to COVID-19. Do you see you know, the African continent being well-equipped to, to address the threat of COVID-19?
1: No, I don't. Although I'll quickly add that I don't think anyone is well-equipped to address this threat right now. I mean, I just talked about the capacity issues in the U.S. So this is in no way um, should be taken as a as, as criticism of what what African authorities are doing Um after the creation, or after the Ebola outbreak in West Africa, we saw the creation of an African Centers for Disease Control, African CDC. And from what I understand, they've been um, really, really active in trying to expand testing capacity across the continent and training labs to perform the test and really doing everything that they can to scale up capacity. But, you know, I just went on about the the capacity and resource issues that we face in high-income countries then stack that against the capacity and resource issues that low-income countries face perpetually across the board, and and so no is is the short and sad answer. And I'm also a little bit concerned that um, and WHO has is very concerned and has been very vocal that what because this is a pandemic happening everywhere at once, what we're going to see is really a look to your own response, where countries governments are rightly focused on what they are doing to protect the health of their own citizens, but that that removes the attention and emphasis and aid dollars and whatever else from what we also need to be doing to protect the most vulnerable—not just in our own countries, but around the world—and um, lower-income countries that need massive help in scaling up capacity to be able to address this—I'm I'm afraid that the attention to that won't be there.
0: I want to come back to the issue of travel bans, um, and you recently published an article titled "Viruses or Virus Travel Ban Are Inevitable but Ineffective," and you published this with Foreign Policy. And for our listeners, I'd say do find this piece, read it. Um, It's highly uh, interesting. I've learned a lot from it. Now, in the article, you argue that when the WHO declared coronavirus uh, outbreak a public health emergency of international concern, more than 70 countries responded by imposing travel ban restrictions against China. And then you go on to say that global health experts overwhelmingly decried travel and trade restrictions as bad policy and irresponsible violations of international law. Uh, Yet we see Governments continue uh, implementing such restrictions, even though you know the scientific community uh, and says you know this it's harmful for for economic self-interest. Um and and doesn't make sense. Now, to some of our listeners, your argument uh, sounds completely counterintuitive. Uh, would you care to explain your thinking behind that argument?
1: Yeah, let me unpack this a little bit and kind of take you through it. Basically, we have this these international health regulations that I mentioned earlier, which is this treaty that governs how countries respond to infectious disease outbreaks. And when WHO declares a public health emergency, it issues recommendations that say whether countries should implement travel and trade restrictions. WHO has consistently advised against them for a couple of reasons. One, they don't do much to slow the spread of disease, um, particularly you know airborne diseases like this or respiratory viruses, and two, they impose economic costs on the countries implementing them, but especially on the countries affected by them. This creates a disincentive for countries to report data early about outbreaks that they're experiencing. Because if a government is afraid that if they share that there are cases of an infectious disease in their country, all of a sudden they're going to get hit with these travel and trade restrictions that might not have any grounding in you know, epidemiology or scientific evidence but are going to impose massive economic costs, then they don't want to take that risk. It's a little bit counterintuitive because once an epidemic gets out of control, you can't hide it anymore and the economic costs are going to be imposed anyway. But we're afraid of consent of creating this disincentive for early reporting. And, you know, every time WHO says don't do it and countries go ahead and do it anyway, that weakens the international legal regime. And that is also a concern. The catch, though is that the idea of travel restrictions makes a lot of sense on a kind of a common sense or like a logical level, right? Virus moves in people. Therefore, if you can stop people from moving, then you can stop the virus from moving. and. When you have a public health emergency declared, you have a lot of people who are not global health experts, who are not sort of inundated in the data about all of the reasons that these don't work as well as we want. They're implemented too late. People slip through the cracks, et cetera, et cetera. Um, You have a lot of people sitting at home in front of their TVs saying, well, if people are sick over there, then shouldn't we not let them come here? Logically, it's a powerful argument. It's a powerful argument for politicians. It's just a difficult argument to get around. Um, We know that policy is not guided by evidence nearly as much as we would like. There winds up being significant pressures on politicians to do as much as they can to protect people, even if those things aren't very effective. And hold on a sec. Um, So politicians come under pressure to implement these things. The good public health advice the things that really do work, like washing your hands. That tends not to be a very compelling public health response, right? Like having your official go on TV and say, oh, yes, you know, there's a pandemic, but just wash your hands doesn't do a lot to build trust. Creating fear and undermining trust in public health officials' ability to respond is itself a dangerous practice. So what I write about in the argument is just, in the article, is just that because there are all of these political incentives working in the direction of travel restrictions, we should continue to, oh, sorry, I should also add that a lot of the restrictions that we were seeing in this case in particular are coming from the private sector, so outside sort of, you know, make, making decisions for business reasons, which is outside of the, the scope of what the international health regulations cover. We also saw China implementing massive measures to restrict travel within the country and also advising that Chinese citizens not travel abroad. So it's hard to say like, oh, well, other governments shouldn't do the same, particularly when WHO was praising what China was doing. And then we also saw with the quarantines being imposed in Wuhan and whatever else that the you know governments were having to go in and evacuate their citizens if they could. And governments may not want to take the risk that they have to continually do this as quarantines expand, whatever else, right? So for all of these, that's another sort of reason for travel restrictions. If we can't make sure that you're, if government can't make sure that its citizens are safe abroad, then they are going to advise citizens not to travel abroad. So for all of these reasons, I think even though public health officials should continue to advise against travel restrictions, we should also recognize that they're likely to happen even against the advice of public health officials and start thinking and talking about what we can do to mitigate some of the like damaging externalities of those restrictions.
0: In listening to what you just said and having read your article, I, I can't help but think, you know, if I look at the Chinese example or the, how the Chinese government has dealt with it, and they have uh, restricted traveling, and we have seen now the numbers really coming down across China. And I think it was this morning, uh, the health authorities there have said the infectious rate in um, Wuhan has now come down to just double-digit figures which is you know a massive drop and this is part and parcel because of these restrictions so even having listened to you i'm still thinking as you know a non-epidemiologist just a lay person look it's working totally
1: so let me distinguish between the kinds of travel restrictions that i'm talking about and the kinds of measures that we saw imposed in china what i'm talking about are restrictions on people traveling between countries not social distancing measures not a cordon which is what we saw in wuhan not Um, more rigorous quarantine measures, right? The idea is something akin to what, you know, the kind of thing that Trump just did with Europe, right? The only way that preventing people from crossing your borders is an effective way of stopping disease is if the only source of disease is coming from outside your borders. And if you can really prevent everybody from doing it. Otherwise, if a few people get through, enough people get through to seed an epidemic in you know in a country locally so that you have community transmission, then you're off to the races. And it doesn't matter really if people are crossing borders anymore, the- Because
0: you t- passed that threshold. Pa-
1: exactly, the time that you gained is like a matter of days in one direction or another. Also, it assumes that we know exactly where the virus is and therefore can prevent everybody at risk from crossing a border. And we've seen that that's not the case, right? Like initially this was in China, but it spread at this point probably quicker than we know. And then you had people getting sick in Italy and potentially traveling to the States before there was a travel ban or traveling elsewhere, right? Um, people coming from Iran. We can't, with a virus that is not easily visible, like this one, where there's a lot of mild cases, a lot of um, you know people who just don't register as sick, then you you're kind of perpetually chasing after it and it's always ahead of you. And if it's always ahead of you, it means you don't know where it is and you can't stop people from coming from there
0: i have to ask you one final question in light of the upcoming presidential elections here in the u.s and you know we've seen the democratic party conventions going on and and, mm-hmm. and so on and now you know the news is hit by by 19 and it's reached the u.s at a politically important moment um do you see this virus having an influence on the upcoming election
1: Absolutely, I do. Um, kind of a logistical influence. And then also, uh, we'll see how it affects um, political opinions. I'm kind of not going to touch that one. But, you know, certainly, if as the country experiences this, and as we see the stock markets fall, like, I'm sure that there will be political ramifications from that. But logistically, it kind of creates a problem because you know, elections are by their nature like you need mass to get public out. events, exactly, exactly right. Yeah. Um, and so, in the U.S., we mostly have in-person voting on a single day. That means that there are large crowds of people coming to the polls. Our polls are actually staffed by volunteers, many of whom are senior citizens. Most of whom are senior citizens, who are most at risk from this. The very people that we don't want, you know, shaking hands with with thousands of people on a day. In the US, you were talking about sort of our federal system before, we actually don't have one national election. We have 50 state elections, each of which are governed by laws at the state level. So if we're going to shift from in-person voting on a single day Either for uh, the primaries or for the general, then that may require changes in you know fifty states to change their laws. It changes to not have a convention in person. the The parties need to change their rules. We're not going to have campaign rallies. Also, not for nothing, but the three candidates remaining in this race um, all. Not Tulsi Gabbard, but apart from Tulsi Gabbard, um, uh, Biden, Trump, and Bernie Sanders are all older people who are themselves at greater risk from this. So, you know... Having them travel all around the country, shaking hands, going 24 hours a day, you know, when they're exhausted, like that kind of creates Massive things that I'm factor. sure that their their staffers are concerned about.
0: Could you uh, envisage uh, a scenario where the U.S. election dates are shifted, not in November, maybe later, <laughs> um, next year?
1: Please God, no. Because...
0: I could see you searching for the words. I, word, I so. know.
1: I, I, I think that sets a bad precedent. And I think postponing the election then creates questions about when we have the election. That Messing with the sort of fundamental timing of elections in a democracy m- makes me nervous. Mm-hmm. But, you know, that said, we have a few months until November. We can switch to mail-in ballots. We can change the way that we are conducting this election so that it is possible to have our election on schedule and not put people at risk. And I think that's a conversation that we really need to start having. Um, And in the end, maybe very good for voter turnout, actually. So there are some states that already do this. Washington State actually primarily has a mail-in. You can vote on the day, but you can also mail in your ballot at any time. And that was good uh, because it would have been a problem to have very, very many people turning up. Uh, at polling places on the primary last Tuesday, but we saw a lot of people just driving through and dropping off their mail-in ballots and not coming into contact with other people, and that's a good precedent.
0: Great, Mara, I want to thank you so much for, for being with me and, and having this very informative, very insightful discussion, and uh, I hope our listeners have learned a lot from this, and um, we look forward to having you back on uh, the Global Futures podcast. Absolutely, thank you so much. This episode of the Global Futures podcast was presented by me, Joel Sandu, and produced by Sonia Sugarbova with support from Hannah Sophie Bolman from the Global Public Policy Institute. Our guest today was Mara Pillinger. If you like what you heard, you can find more Global Governance Futures podcasts and a suite of GGF products, including scenario reports, opinion pieces, and interviews, as well as other podcasts, by visiting ggfutures.net forward slash analysis. Until next time, stay healthy, and we wish you all well.